Magic of the Spheres podcast. This is Sabrina Monarch, and this is a show about spiritual lifestyle and personal evolution. I'm an evolutionary astrologer, a clairvoyant, and a thought leader, and I started this podcast to have more eclectic conversations about astrology as well as all things spiritual and personal development. I had fellow astrologer and friend Bear River on the show to philosophize about reincarnation. I really enjoyed having this conversation and the sense of timelessness and reverie that it opened up. From discussing reincarnation, meeting people again in this life that we've met before, spiritual transformations that emerge from romantic and erotic longing and experience, dreaming, and of course, astrology. These are definitely realms of conversation that can get us starry-eyed. I like to watch what happens to a room when the topic of dreams come up and everyone starts talking about their mystical dream experiences. It's like everyone gets this little glimmer in their eyes and they start to get into this other frame of mind. And I feel like this conversation was that we were getting into just the mystical topics of life and traveling down that route. And we did travel to some places. So this is actually a two-part episode. Part one of this episode, which is this one, focuses on reincarnation through the lens of Venus and Mars, and then catch us on part two coming out next for our thoughts on reincarnation through the lens of the outer planets or the transpersonal planets, Uranus, Neptune, and Pluto. Bear River is an intersectional astrologer and a Reiki master winner of the Organization for Professional Astrology's Most Promising Astrologer Scholarship of 2018. He offers private consultations internationally, including his signature astro-healing sessions through his practice, Psyche and Soul Astrology. With a background in anti-oppression activism and organizing, his astrological research integrates mundane, evolutionary, modern, and traditional schools of thought, and explores the intersections of power, privilege, and politics as seen in the chart. His mission is to help his clients remain grounded and empowered while they accelerate their growth. You can find out more about him and his readings at his website, psycheandsoulastrology.com. Bear recently gave a presentation at NORWAC, the Northwest Astrological Conference, called The Intersectionality of Astrology, and it was awesome. I'm pretty sure it's available on his Patreon, and I'll leave the link in the notes if you want to learn more about that. Here's our conversation. Welcome to the show. I'm here with Bear River to talk about astrology and reincarnation. So good to have you here. Thank you so much for having me, Sabrina. I'm really excited. Yay. So tell us about your experience working with reincarnation and astrology both. Like what brought you to these concepts um, and how, how do you experience them personally? Yeah, that's, that's so big. We could talk for hours about just that. Um, the short version my exposure to reincarnation and astrology is kind of a, a two-pronged path. Um, as a youngster, kind of, I want to say 13, 14 in high school, so beginning of high school, 13 years old, got really into reading more about astrology all up on skyscript.co.uk and um, astro.com, reading as much as I could about the theory behind astrology. Uh, and as well, there were a couple other services that existed around that time that allowed you to 
get a bit of detailed transit tracking information. And so I started just looking at tracking transits in terms of astrology. But at that same time, I was learning about Buddhism. And as a youngster, I was pretty <clears throat> fanatically obsessed with Buddhist practice and meditation as only a youngster can be. And in that process, of course, with Buddhism, the, the idea of reincarnation or multi-lifetime schema is definitely very, very present. And the idea that we come back again and again until we achieve some sort of perfect enlightenment or awakening or understanding of reality definitely really took root with me. And over the course of, of high school, I started really thinking a lot about philosophy, astrology, Buddhism, and asking myself the question, if we do come back, if this is the case, then how do we know when to come back to have the exact precise experience we need to bring up these past lifetime experiences just enough that we experience them in this lifetime as our, as this, this lifetime's ego or identity. Um, and astrology really does speak to a lot of that. Even the idea that, um, that our birth charts speak to both our impulse to incarnate and the duration of our incarnation um, already just really neatly fit in. And over the course of the years, kind of being exposed to more evolutionary astrologer thinkers, especially Kaipacha, um, with his Pele report, got me really looking deeply into that. But you know, Stephen Forrest was one of the first uh, was one of the first astrologer, like one of the first books that I picked up was The Inner Sky. So that's definitely been part of my astrological thought process. Love evolutionary astrology. And I feel like the Pluto and the lunar nodes method is really all about past lives and how we're bringing those impressions into this incarnation. Absolutely. And, you know, in terms of my consultations today, although, you know, I've gotten certified in Hellenistic astrology and literary, and I, I do embrace a lot of traditional technique, technique and literature. Um, I always start with the evolutionary axis. The first thing I'm looking at is, all right, how is Pluto how are Pluto and the nodes playing together? Is there anything squaring the nodes? Where are the rulers of the nodes? What is this person's impulse for being here? And I think, you know, I'm sure we'll talk about this more, but looking at Pluto in particular as a symbol that ties together eons of history in terms of cycles and ties together generations and this individuals, um, looking at the way that generations, Pluto's aspect one another speaks to generations within family units so well. So there's a lot of ways where that EA schema reads as true just in my day-to-day -day experience. So it's hard to, hard to put that aside, even, even if it's not in the ancient literature. Yeah. So speaking of that, like the day-to-day -day experience, how do you feel like reincarnation alters a sense of self or like the purpose of being here? So not that we're just living this one life, but that we've had others and that we'll have more. Do you feel like um, that creates a shift in how we orient to life? Absolutely. You know, I think, um, God, I'm pretty sure it's like an Erica Badu song, right? I guess I'll see you next lifetime. Yeah. Right. So even in relationships, there's this feeling of like, all right, cool. Maybe, maybe this feeling of love at first sight is actually that I know you. And like, yeah, I already do love you because we've already been here. We've already been in a relationship. Um, so an acceptance of that feeling of fadedness that happens, a willingness to go deeper into connections than would maybe otherwise make sense. 
Um, there's definitely, you know, for me, I often have the experience, maybe I shouldn't say often, it's been frequent enough in my life that I have these very poignant and prescient random synchronous meetings with people. Um, one time, uh, and this kind of really does tie in, I was having a bit of a spiritual crisis. I think it was my 27th birthday, you know, so all of the different, you know, <clears throat> all the different astrological things that are happening right around that age and going out into the woods by myself and having a little medicine journey, thinking about you know, why did I come here in this lifetime? And if relationships are so painful, then, you know, why, why I do them? Is there a karmic reason to do it? Am I burning out old karma? Am I creating new karma? Um, but coming back down from this camping trip, I just by impulse took a different highway than I had thought to otherwise and stopped at a really beautiful beach to just sit and journal for a minute. And an old woman saw me drawing or something and came up and sat next to me and struck up this conversation gave me a little bit of like some medicine that she'd made. She was in herbalism class, like in her mid eighties. But we had this conversation for maybe 15 minutes. And I just had this very visceral experience of like, uh, it's so great that we got to like see each other, even for this brief moment in this lifetime, how precious is it that we can find one another again? Um, so there's a certain aliveness that moments have that might otherwise seem random. And then I think, more importantly, having this idea that, you know, I'll come back, but also that I won't be me makes me treasure the experience of this ego, this body in this lifetime more, and also allows me to be much less attached to this ego, this lifetime. It's great. It just is what it is. It's not that big of a deal. Uh, and I think when we have this idea that we have just this one lifetime. And if we don't prove that we've absolutely achieved some sort of perfection, then we can't go into the eternal kingdom of heaven. Like, I feel like that sets us up for a lot of stress and strife. Uh, <laughs> a lot more attachment. <laughs> yeah. I love that sense of like the mystical quality of meeting people and having that gratitude of like meeting them, whether it's again, or just that the synchronicity has allowed it. Um, mm -hmm. I remember falling asleep one night and having this sense of dissolving my sense of self, like in a hypnagogic state and all of a sudden coming to and wondering like, is that what it feels like to just drop into the sea and like be not be a personal self. And I remembered, um, I think in that, whether it was in that moment or just a memory that I connect to that of being in kindergarten and first grade and second grade, and really having this sense of pride of knowing everyone's names in my class their first and last name. And I really don't remember their first and last names. I don't remember who was in my class, but my first grade self cared about that information. So I started to think like everything that I focus on and think about and collect as data in my experience is one day going to not matter. And that yet doesn't have to mean that it doesn't matter now. It's like, how do you hold both of those like schemes of time? Yeah. Oh, that's such a beautiful thing. You know, I think it speaks, it speaks a lot to some of the like inner outer planet aspect stories that show up. Um, but there's something really, oh, can I pull it all together? Um, this feeling of perfect synchronicity and kind of like this mystical 
quality of existing and being. This thought might have might have run away from me, but I'm going to try to pull it together anyways. Um, <clears throat> this this feeling of being incarnated in this way to me almost feels like it allows us to no, I can't. I'm sorry. But <laughs> okay, it'll come back maybe. Um, I feel like every time I try to think about anything Neptunian, my brain just turns into the Neptunian funky mush. Um, it will come back, I'm sure. Well, um, another thing that I wanted to ask you about was the kind of difference between up and out spiritual practices versus down and in. And I feel like reincarnation is a really good kind of like blend of the both because it holds both in it. Um, and so a sense of like, if we are reincarnating and, you know, so that means that we have this separation from this incarnation and yet we also came here like how does that play into kind of our values of how we show up for life of how much we engage and incarnate here versus how much we pull away and detach yeah that one's so slippery and trickery and i just remembered what it was that i was going to say before we can come back to that um i think that it can really depend on how we view incarnation You know, I think that there is, it's easy in particular for a Westerner, I believe, to perceive incarnation in a really punitive and carceral fashion Mm -hmm. um, that we failed at achieving enlightenment. Therefore, we've been punished by having to come back and do this terrible human suffering existence over again. Um, You know, I think that it is true uh, in the in the Buddhist notion that one of the one of the eternals of experience is that there is suffering inherent in it. Not that life is bad and that to be a human is some terrible fate, but that by virtue of being born, we'll age and get sick and die one day. And most of us don't like those experiences. Um, but I think this reincarnation schema, especially when we think about it astrologically, is this idea that we have multiple lifetimes that are set up just so to allow us to achieve a certain mastery of self or mastery of love. Um, I think if we, you know, kind of take the idea that we're ascending into a higher dimensional consciousness or awareness, I think what that idea is really speaking to is that as we more fully live into our experience, right? That down and in process that we really do awaken something that's uh, maybe divine isn't quite the right word, but it's almost that, you know, it's this divine aspect of, of being a human, this perfect compassion, right? Like Christ-like compassion or sage-like wisdom, like that type of kind of like the platonic ideal of these human qualities. Uh, so I think reincarnation gives us that. And at least as somebody who does really deeply believe or have the experience that I've been here before and some of these things I'm remembering, some of these things I'm experiencing for the first time, it really challenges me to feel into the way that even experiences that I can't relate to in this lifetime right now are something that are deeply a part of me. Um, that like everyone's suffering is something that I have deeply experienced once before. 
Um, and that any, you know, any slight or any harm is one that I've likely perpetuated before. Um, so for me, it allows me to feel like I can accept and receive almost any encounter that I have and allow it to deeply become a part of me. You know, and before the, you know, as we were doing the pre-show chat, we were talking about this idea, or I was talking about this idea that, you know, it's this down and in process that is required to be able to do the up and out, at least from that kind of Buddhist notion that we like achieve nirvana or enlightenment or awakening. Um, and that to me really jives with the experiences I've had, like in Berkeley Psychic Institute and those types of spaces that without grounding deeply into earth, into our bodies, that it's not, we don't have the full ability to really either open up at all, up and out, um, or to really make use of that as well as we could. Do you have any thoughts on like why we forget our prior lives before we come here? Mm -hmm. Yes. So a couple different stories and this, I think, well, let me go back to the, the thought I lost. So you were talking about this like hypnagogic quality of losing the self. Right. Um, and there's this book that I've been reading for over a decade, the Tibetan yogas of dream and sleep. And even in like the Tibetan book of the dead, one of the things they talk about is that the process of falling asleep is sort of parallel to the process of dying that our senses one by one fall away. And as our senses fall away, the, the sensory data that creates the shapes and contours of our ego identity also fall away. Um, so if we think about like the process of falling asleep, many of us remember the like the process of starting to have visualization or starting to fall that like, ugh, you know, drop a thousand feet feeling. But most of us don't remember the actual onset of a dream. Even if you're lucid in a dream, you often can't remember how you went from one dream sequence to the next. Um, and my experience with various medicine journeys tells me that as we go through that process of being everything all at once and to being one distinct being, that some of it gets lost in translation. So we can't quite remember. Um, even if we think, you know, dream is going to be the one that all of us can, can relate to to some extent. Um, even if you can visceral, even if you can distinctly recall a certain image in a dream or a certain sequence of a dream, it doesn't mean you can recall the thing that made that seem totally logical and real in the moment. And I think as we come into this life, that part of it is that it's too painful and traumatic. Um, I think part of it is that, you know, forgetting is actually a very essential function for our brains to work properly. Um, if we remember every single detail, um, most people who have that ability have, have a bit of difficulty in some facet, um, in some aspect, like a lot of folks who do have that super precise, no detail ever escapes you, no detail ever leaves your brain. Um, it's kind of like a heavy burden on the mind, right? Um, even if you were to try to remember every single first and last name of every single classmate in first grade, you know, how many times would that interfere with your ability to learn a new name or make it so that every single Isaac you've ever met kind of starts to blur together. Um, does that make sense? 
Yeah, totally. I'm in like a Neptunian kind of like reverie listening to that because it's interesting because we also, I think for those of us that are into astrology or want to know about our past lives, we're seeking remembrance. Mm -hmm. And then we simultaneously also have benefited in some way from forgetting. So it's interesting. Like, um, I feel like for me personally, like investigating my natal chart and thinking about my past lives has helped me understand my life, my current life. And so I've wanted that information. And I think that like through prayer and through meditation and kind of like communicating with my own soul, basically, I've told myself like, it's okay to remember Mm -hmm. and things come in and there's different layers. And so I do also understand the experience firsthand as well of like what it's like to receive too much information at once and to like not know how to integrate it. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, um, you know, perhaps that's why we need a whole entire extra life. We don't just get like a review at the end and then a redo on the test. Um, that it really does require this complete and total surrender and immersion in an embodied sense to be able to integrate what happened last time, what it is we were hoping to do. Um, you know, even if there is even the ability to have that type of thought process on the other side, you know, um, and my, my personal cosmology of bear, and I think a lot about the Tibetan notion of the bardo, um, and that's kind of shown up in some of my journey experiences. And so it feels very profound and real to me that we do have this going through uh, many cycles of awareness and confrontation with ultimate reality um, when we shed the physical form. Um, you know, and uh, this kind of, it might seem kind of like a tangent, but, you know, I think about the, the fact that the human sensory equipment, right, our eyes, our ears, our noses, we actually don't have the sensory equipment to perceive all of reality. We can't see all of light. We can't hear all of sound. Um, so I think there's a lot of indications that it's vitally important to shed and forget a lot to focus in on very specific things. And I think we see that in the chart, you know, that like not everything is activated at once, right? We look at annual perfections to see what's most important this year. Um, not every single aspect can be perfect, right? You can't, it's not even possible um, to have every single planet equidistant because some planets can only be so far away from the sun. Um, so I think we see a lot of different indications that the thing that allows us to do the down and in and be in this body enough to engage in an up and out type of thought process is by really zeroing in on one thing, like to the exclusion of everything else. Hmm. Yeah, that has me. I'm just like, I'm Mercury and Pisces. And I remember like my first year of college having these like epiphanies that about sensory organs, basically, and that what we understand to be reality is filtered through human sensory organs. And yet we have um, this sense 
of like knowing everything (laughs) that can like permeate like human consciousness or like, you know, we have answers or this is official. And it suddenly just seemed like a weird farce. Like, do we really know anything? And I just kind of like went out to see forever from there of like, there's so much information and you can like, you can also pick up information from like the ethereal planes or from psychic, you know, and there's, um, that, opening to psychic information made it harder for me to participate in this reality in a more normal way. Like I just couldn't care about certain details anymore (laughs) in the sense and Mm -hmm. had to like go work on the psychic stuff and the visionary stuff and bring that back here in a sense. So I really can feel that sense of like, like, mercury overload or like a flooded mercury in a sense and how it can make it difficult to function if you're in taking so much information yeah yeah i mean i think i'm trying to think pull somewhere out of the recesses of my brain like a myth about someone who did finally discover something perfectly but i think you know the icarus myth really really fits in that role in some ways and um you know, whether we think about Icarus, this idea that you try to fly to the sun, right? If, if um, I have this idea that you know, light is a knowledge, um, and maybe that's not so crazy, right? There's, it's not so implausible that light as you know, a wave and a particle is carrying information and that um, all information is contained in, in waves, wavicles, particles. Um, not to get too scientific because I'm not a scientific materialist. Um, but if we, if information being transmitted, right, that is what happens. Our consciousness isn't capable of processing every bit of information that comes through. There's this great book called the user illusion, um, written by, I might get this wrong, Tor Noratonders. I'll find it and give you the proper information so you can write it somewhere. Um, but the user illusion is definitely the name of this book. And he talks about various data that's come through a lot of different um, academic disciplines. One bit of data being that human consciousness probably has a bandwidth of about 40 bits per second. But our sensory equipment, right, in the Buddhist schema, we'd be talking about sense gates. Um, our sense organs are processing well over a million bits of data per second, like per sense, pretty much. I think there's one that's running in like the hundreds of thousands, um, but we're compressing tens of millions of bits of data per second down into about 40. Um, so consciousness, right? This experience that we have of being able to totally know stuff is so not what's actually happening, right? And I think any of us who've had psychic experiences or strong intuitions or um, you know have the ability to speak to the dead any of that kind of thing, it's so, so visceral and so apparent that there is a ton that cannot be perceived by our senses or even known by our mind. And I think maybe that's part of the forgetting. One of my experiences in journey was, you know, coming out of journey and having asked to see the bardo and how do we get incarnated and how do we go from being one being into nothing, into everything, into a thing again. And my experience was going on this wild psychotic ride where I experienced being everything, experiencing everything inside of half a second and then nothing, right? So like breathe in and 
all of awareness, all of reality happens at once. You breathe out, everything falls away, you go to void. Um, you know, yoga talks about this, meditation talks about this. You can get this to this space a lot of ways. But being in that space and trying to come back, I had this experience where my friend talked to me, you know, hey, bear, wake up, stop pretending you're asleep, we gotta go. And I tried to speak, and every thought that I had was so vast and expansive that I couldn't find a word that even felt remotely close. Like when you say a word so many times, it just sounds like nonsense, right? Every word felt like that, except for thank you and I love you. So I think that we kind of come into this life primed for the experience of gratitude and love and connection, but that everything else just doesn't make sense. Um, that when we try to box it into discrete words and definition, so much is lost in translation, it's not possible to carry it over. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like the perception, like early pre-verbal perception, if we remember it, is pretty like it's psychedelic. Mm -hmm. um, and we simplify it by organizing it into concepts, but that just like perception itself is very vast. So I wanted to ask you about kind of how the planets correlate with reincarnation. And mm -hmm. originally when we were talking about this, I was saying that I can readily think about reincarnation from the perspective of the outer planets and the moon and the lunar nodes, but what about the inner planets? Um, so I'd love to hear like how you feel reincarnation through the inner planets, if that feels like a good place to start and we can kind of explore the yeah. solar system from there. Yeah, absolutely. I'll, you know, just put a big fat disclaimer. I'm just spitballing here. Um, but I think that's one of the things that I was, you know, for me, at least that's one of the things I was really excited about, about our conversation that we could just kind of philosophize and geek out about astrology. Um, I'm spitballing too. <laughs> like yes. before we got, I was like, should I have like taken notes about Uranus and like the higher mind? And no. <laughs> It'll come. I, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I think, I don't know if I can kind of have the, pull out the same idea in terms of like the function that the outer planets have when it comes to reincarnation. Like, you know, um, I'm not even going to cite any one particular in person because the EA just kind of holds this idea that, you know, Pluto is going to hold this emotional intensity. That's so extreme. We have to come back to revisit and process it. Um, and, so I don't know that like Mercury has that, or at least I can't think of it at this moment. But one thing that I think a lot about is Mars and Venus, right? Holding this kind of binary opposition um, and the way in which binary oppositions are at once not real, but also how we experience reality. Um, you know, and coming from this like Buddhist background and that really coloring my, my introduction and my understanding of astrology, you know, we have this like, there is no inherently existing thing that is the truth of inherent non-existence. And yet here we are having this experience of existing. Um, so Buddhism very much has this like holding these binary opposites, um, you know, attachment and aversion are actually the same thing that they're that in order to achieve full awakening, right. That complete up and outward um, that we have to completely 
we have to accept so completely that we can let go completely of our attachment to the spiritual path to arrive at awakening. Um, so it's very much both of those things. And I feel like Mars and Venus hold that in a lot of ways. I think a lot about Mars and the, the function of separation, right? Um, if we, if we buy the story that there is just awareness or existence or the one, right? There's the monad. And then we move into this dyad, this duality opposition through separation. If there's only one, we can't have an us and God experience. We can't have an up and out or even a down and in experience. We have to have the separation, right? Um, and I feel like when, uh, um, when Uranus was moving through Aries that a lot of folks were really having this grappling with this like spiritual feeling of separation. Um, and that's like so deep in the Western mind, at least that, you know, we were in paradise and then we were exiled, um, that there's this painful separation from ultimate reality or from God or from perfection. That is the cause of our, of our experiences. We have it. And so I think a lot about Mars as that function, thing that separates, divides, that creates, creates that stark binary experience that has us either, um, I think often the experience of aversion, right? And from a Buddhist perspective, aversion that becomes deeply embodied would be the kind of thing that would make us have to come back. Um, such deep and profound aversion to, um, to, to any part of existence is going to cause us to not be able to integrate it. And that awakening, in my conception at least, is just as much about awareness and understanding as it is about integration and acceptance. So I think that's that like down and, down and in and up and out. So aversion... Does this mean like dislike or dislike hatred, um, running away from, right. And I think that's the one that we would really see uh, astrologically, you know, like I have Neptune squaring in the nodes in my chart pretty tightly and it's right on my descendant. So I think a lot about, you know, okay, so what was it that I had a foggy or murky understanding of? Was I deeply afraid of something? Was I deeply confused about something in my application or understanding? And it's squaring Libra Aries nodes. Um, and so I think a lot about that Mars part, right? Like, what is it about being an alive, visceral, vital person that was rejected, right? Because Mars holds that. Um, like, was there a deep aversion to being embodied? And one of my earliest past life experiences was. Um, getting like a free reading at the Berkeley Psychic Institute right before class graduated and a student being like, okay, so one of your guides is like super really here. There's like a monk that's really pissed off about everything that's happening right now. And, you know, I have this, this experience that like, it's not a past life me that's hanging out, but that a past life me was so hardcore about Buddhism that there's a teacher that's just followed me. Like, yo dude, you said you were going to figure this shit out. And I've followed you into a whole other lifetime to make sure you work it out this time. Um, and so I think about Mars, like the experience of being alive is really traumatic. And, you know, whether you're talking about societies or cultures that have the idea of like spirit flight, right? Like our spirit can be too 
too overwhelmed, can be averse to being in this life being embodied. Um, and we can be really averse to, you know, a lot of things that are supernatural, like dying or illness or the ending of things. And if we're so averse to that, I think that that does make us have to come back to learn how to accept all of life, all of reality, every part of being a human as just as divine as any other part. Hmm. It's interesting too, like Mars is the, is an octave of Pluto, it said. Mm -hmm. And so Pluto is this like deeper soul rhythm or this sense of like feeling really intensely attached Mm -hmm. and Mars like cuts and divides. So it's interesting thinking about, um, aversion in this way and how that connects to the emotional fixations that keep us like coming back yeah, and that those are fixations of attraction and repulsion. Yeah. And those are, there's so much one side of the coin and the other. Um, And I think that, you know, before in the pre-show, we were also talking about Mars showing up as, you know, potentially destruction. I said like, one of the hallmarks of the of modernity is apocalyptic thinking. And just in my like quick survey of various myths that I can think of, um, you know, if you get into Christian mythology, I don't want to say mythology, no offense to anyone, um, creation stories from many different cultures, um, whether they're creation or some very sacred part of human history, uh, so many of them point to this moment of destruction or sudden violent separation from like paradise um, or even from knowledge, right? Like I think a lot about when I was a youngster reading the Bible a lot, the Tower of Babel, that was the story I was obsessed with. You know, that if we, if we could, Hey, there's the story I was looking for. If we could achieve some sort of perfect knowledge, right? If we could elevate ourselves, on par with God that we would have to experience some sort of destruction as a result. Um, But even if we don't think about it in this punitive way, and I think that that is very much a part of Western thought that if we are here having this less than perfect, less than heaven experience, it's some type of punishment. Um, There's like a very punitive and carceral thread of the Western mind. Um, And so thinking about that, I think Mars holds that. Mars holds this memory of violence that we've experienced, whether it's the violent separation of like literally being birthed, because that's not exactly, um, that's a very difficult process, both for, for, um, for mom or anybody else who's giving birth to a baby and for baby, um, to be compressed in that way. Um, not to mention all the blood. Right. So like there's so many ways where we can see that Mars show up. And I think the Venus part is just as just as obvious, right? It's the other side of the coin where we have that intense visceral aversion to some aspect of experience, where we have an intense obsession with either comforting ourselves over and over again with a certain sensation or even just an obsession with sensory pleasure, right? Um if we get super obsessed in the sensation of the body, we can forget to exercise our minds or to engage the spirit. Um, and that would also you know, cause us to have to come back if all we're doing is um, 
indulging our sense pleasures to be PC and PG about it, um, then it makes sense that we would have to come back and do a lifetime where we aren't so wrapped up in the body. Um, at least that's my focus, but you know, like I said, I've got Neptune squaring, squaring Aries Libra node. So that's what I'm here to work on. Yeah. Interesting. It's like, I feel when I first was studying evolutionary astrology and starting to work with this self-concept of having been here before and that, um, it gave me a deeper sense of things mattering in this life because I felt like, well, the story is going to continue. It's not just going to end. So I'm either going to figure this out or I'm going to postpone it to another lifetime. And the more you postpone something, the more crisis like it can get. So it kind of motivated me to work on things. But um, it's interesting with Venus as being either like a, a place of, uh, indulgence to, a, I think of even like Taurus, like just getting so in something that there's kind of like a blinder. And then alternately, like what you were saying before, that that rooting down can be a way of opening up so that there is a way that sensory experiences can also be portals and like figuring that balance out on earth. And just that, you know, even to calling back to what you were saying with like relationship. And I think that a lot of people who entertain reincarnation, um, I mean, most people I talk to are like, yeah, I've been here before. Like, I don't know, like if that's just because my freak flag with my astrology is like all the way up. So I attract people that are like of like mind, but I feel like even people, you know, unless they have like a religious, um, belief that makes them feel guilty or scared of believing in reincarnation, most people entertain it, I've found. Um, it's even just pleasant for people to think about. But um, a lot of people that have this sense of, yeah, I've been here before, it's a relationship that has shown them that because they have this feeling for another person that they can't explain and that takes them somewhere and like brings up all this stuff. And we could say it's psychological, but even the psyche is mysterious. We have this unconscious or this subconscious and what's that? <laughs> like, where does that even come from? So I think that relationship really can be this uh, like portal into that deeper kind of soul content and memory. Absolutely. You know, I think in just in terms of communicating with another person, right. Um, <clears throat> to get mercurial about it. Our ability to think, communicate, and exchange thoughts and ideas is part of what defines us as a, as a different type of animal from the rest. Um, and particularly in the sense that, you know, it's not just this feeling of, oh, I know this person. It's this feeling of, and here, all these stories, these thoughts, these words that have come through in my mind or images, right? Like, there is a very like sudden and abrupt type of communication information that's communicated um, often in a very visceral way. And then, you know, having relationship, whether you're talking about it from, from a, a Buddhist perspective and you, you are at a minimum creating some type of karma, even if it's the teeniest, tiniest bit of karma, there is some effect that has been caused. Um, but if we think about really deep and profound relationships like being parents, 
um, being really deeply committed partners, really deeply bonded partners. There's a deep attachment there, right? Um, and if the idea is that we have to achieve this type of non-attachment and understanding that our illusory perception of reality is illusory, but it's also our only perception and having some sort of equanimity about whether or not it's real or not real, if that's what's required to, to awaken, then getting deeply, deeply enmeshed in an attachment with a person is going to keep us coming back into this body process, right? Um, and I think even just in terms of, you know, getting really physical with the sex, um, engaging our bodies in that way, especially in the sense that there's some part of us that is getting inside to somebody else, even if it's just our tongues, right? Like there is this very literal getting into another person and an exchange. And if the exchange of genetic material is what causes physical incarnation to be possible, then it makes sense to me that the exchange of psychic or spiritual or emotional material would also cause like multi-lifetime karmic entanglement, if that makes sense. Yeah, it makes sense. <laughs> it's interesting because I feel like um, when engaging one's energy more towards connection, it inherently makes life more complex. I think of this with like Taurus and the hermit side of Taurus and how we can just kind of be in our routines and be in the cave and just like be with ourselves, And it creates a certain level of simplicity or equanimity and sometimes stagnancy. And then when we exchange with other people and especially at a depth uh, level or with intimacy, then it creates a lot of change um, in life. And I think it's interesting, like contemplating that while being on a spiritual path, because I think that different seasons of life will call for like different ways of expressing one's energy, whether that's more inward or more towards connection. Um, but that it, it does feel karmic. It's like, you may know this person from a prior life. Um, and if it's someone that you don't, well, you're creating a connection with them now and you may meet them again. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that it's, there is a continuation of every story, whether we, you know, even if it's just like some type of epigenetic memory and it's not past lives, it's our ancestors. And we're having this experience of like, Oh, somewhere in my DNA, somewhere in my ancestral memory, I recognize you as part of this other ancestral lineage that I've been in contact with, right? Cause we're all descendants of the same handful of humans. Um, and I also think about, you know, you said Venus is creating more complexity. And I thought about, you know, all those co-words, you know, Michael J. Morris and it's like, Oh, right. Venus, the, the, what Venus does is it, it causes cohesion, right? It collects, it coalesces things. And of course you would have more complexity if you're going to start combining and collecting all of these different impulses, especially if we're combining and collecting all these different sensory experiences or preferences, right? Value judgments. Like there's so many different, like if Mars is a thing that's separating and creating these two different things that we can define, Venus is the one that's coming and then deciding how we feel about it, right? Whether we like it or not, whether we're going to be attached to it or indifferent to it. Um, absolutely hate it and reject it. 
<clears throat> and I think that that brings us here. Um, but the thing I think that really like hits me with relationships is when we have those fantastic friendships, really important partnerships, even just connecting with someone that we really enjoy. There's this feeling of never wanting it to end, right? There's this like in being able to mercury, like deeply communicate and properly share and exchange our thoughts and ideas, our feelings about what we value and desire. Um, you know, even our, our hatreds and the things that we're averse to when we're able to connect all those things together, it's almost like this feeling of I'm so completely seen. I'm so completely merging into this experience. It's like the closest, it's the closest that we get to have in an embodied right here on earth way um, to the experience of like divine communion, I think. So even if it's just like meeting someone in this lifetime that you really like, like, obviously we'd want to come back a second time if that person's that awesome like one lifetime of knowing them is definitely not enough wow this is speaking my like venus and pisces language (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah i got my midheaven up in pisces so i can definitely i can woo with the best of them it's like uh yeah um I feel like a lot of my spiritual path has come from like heartbreak, like reckoning with romantic loss Mm -hmm. and not even like being able to compute like that depth of bond and that like spiritual kind of sense of oneness. And then the severance of that has been a huge kind of heart opener in a really unpleasant (laughs) and difficult way. But one of, um, when I was like really in the throes of that experience, um, someone told me that romantic, like, uh, requited romantic and erotic attraction is like one of the deepest intoxicants that we have here. Oh yeah. I mean, it's like, right. Every single drug is just triggering a cascade of chemical, like neurotransmitters, and sometimes also hormones that we wouldn't otherwise have going on. Being in close communion, I mean, even like love that isn't specifically erotic, that like deep, deep connection, oxytocin is the craziest fucking drug. It's the most potent drug for sure. And that feeling of being like chemically in love with someone, like that level of dopamine and serotonin and oxytocin going on, yeah, that's absolutely intoxicating. It's not surprising that, you know, for all of human history so far as we can tell, people have been writing stories or, yeah, writing stories, poems, obsessing about, making up tales about, like, pursuing that experience, being in that experience or the loss of it. And I think, you know, speaking to, like, the, the loss of it, I definitely relate to that, like, heartbreak being this like spiritual instigator kind of thing. Um, You know, with one of my most intense medicine journeys, you know, and asking the medicine for for some insight into, into quite a bit, I was asking about, you know, this relationship that just, I love this person so much. And it feels like we've been together so many times and that we tried so hard to be incarnated together again. And it finally happened, but it doesn't work. What is this about? And the medicine was like, you need to learn about, being separate. Like, um, you know, I think a lot about 
about that. You know, I've got a couple serious exes that I'm friends with to this day. And, you know, it's such a special, sacred thing to trust another person, to break your heart enough to open you up in just the right way to, to like hold as precious and to really cherish being with someone, right? Because like, I think, you know, the, whether you think about it as a Buddhism thing or just an inevitability thing, we are all going to die one day. That one way or another, there will be the end of this experience of connection and communion and erotic love and, and being held and seen completely. And with, with that ending being inevitable, we have to have someone that comes around to help break us out of this idea that that in love feeling will last forever. Or the honeymoon phase is anything other than just like a period of time or that, you know, we can just have whatever we want indefinitely. So even though it's so painful and like heartbreak, right? There's another Venus way that we just we end up back here again. Uh, it also feels like one of the ways that can potentially like unlock awakening if, in a weird way, if that makes sense. It makes a lot of sense. It's just like even healing to talk about. And we're in Venus retrograde right now. So like, I think even uh, it's common and it's like the retrograde started square Neptune. So this sense of like visitations and dreams or thinking about exes or actually encountering them, I feel like is pretty up in the field. Um, And thinking about that thought of like the lesson being separation is really beautiful because I think that that can like clear away some of the despair fog of like that we were meant to be in it it ended and it's bad but to like actually just accept how things are yeah yeah i mean that's that's the i mean in my opinion at least that's the trick of being human there's so much that we there's so much that's awesome and it's totally normal to want it to last forever and there's so much that is not super awesome and it's totally normal to want that to end as quickly as possible. Um, but that's not equanimity. That's not perfect acceptance of what is really happening. And I think, you know, that's that flip side of Neptune. You know, if Neptune has with it significations of illusion and deceit, it also has with it significations of like perfect acceptance, surrender in a way that's not like, I think most Americans think of surrender as like waving the white flag and give up and defeated. But surrender is actually, I wish I'd looked up the etymology of the word and I could actually say what it is, but surrender is completely like allowing an external experience to come all the way down Mm. and in to ground into it, to integrate it into your being. Um, And then once it's in there, it's just part of you. So. Speaking of the outer planets um, and how they connect with reincarnation, let's dive into that. Yeah. Um, So I'm actually, I'm going to plug in my computer. Oh, yeah. 
<laughs> it's like gonna die soon. And oh, no. as we were literally talking about like um, wanting things to last forever, I was like, oh, my computer's <laughs> about to die. <laughs> want this battery to last forever. <laughs> it's too much at stake here. Oh yeah, we we don't want to have to. <laughs> this synchronicity can only only happen the one time. <laughs> So for reincarnation and the outer planets, um, I, those were the ones that were like really obvious to me of like, they all have such really strong, like significations around that because they're transpersonal and in that is like beyond the personal, beyond the current incarnation. Tune in for the next episode for the continuation of this conversation where we talk about reincarnation further through the lenses of the transpersonal planets Uranus, Neptune, and Pluto. I just wanted to close this out with a little bit of musing and reflection because I'm here. There's a microphone in front of me. It's Sunday night, and there's a few different things on my mind. One of them is the quality, so let's like keep it on on topic with reincarnation. What does it feel like to get into a, a still meditative place and contemplate the witness side of you, the being that is observing your own consciousness, and to kind of sit in the fire of life, because sometimes life is really intense. Um, sometimes life is really stimulating and even like when nothing is going on, like there can be moments where our internal reactions or responses to life feels intense. Like that's a, a loud volume. And I think that I had this feeling at some point in my life that one day things would feel less intense And that's never panned out. (laughs) The intensity of life just continues. And I think that the more tools that I gain for regulating myself emotionally or regulating my nervous system, the more that I feel. It's like the more bandwidth that you get. And I think that within that sheer intensity of presence and of beingness, that having a sense of detachment from the story of our life and the story of our personal ego can be so helpful and perpetually a very interesting dynamic of how much do we detach and look at things from a different perspective or a bigger like bird's eye view and then with that insight or with that alignment, with that attunement, then how do we go into life and participate in life with a sense of deep presence and ethics and love? It's kind of like switching the frame of zooming into life or being in something, being immersed and zooming out. And I think that when we think about ourselves as beings who have been here before and who will be here again, it can be a way of self-dialogue that zooms out. 
And so we can be in the presence and the heat and the livingness and all the stuff of our personal ego incarnation and also have this kind of witness curiosity. So that's all I'm going to say for now. I'm excited to share part two of this conversation. So stay tuned in for that. Also stay tuned for a Kickstarter campaign that I have coming out later this month. I'll be announcing it across all my platforms. And if you want to stay in the know about things that are coming out from me and Monarch Astrology and Magic of the Spheres podcast in general, my mailing list is a great way to stay in touch. I'm leaving a link for that in the notes. June of this year marked the beginning of the sixth year of creating weekly content. I started writing weekly astrology content in June of 2015. And this is my first ever funding a year ahead Kickstarter campaign. I'm really excited about what's going to happen. And I'm offering a bunch of really cool rewards, discounted tuition to my evolutionary astrology intensive, the lowest ever priced tuition to a new course, online presences, performance art, which you'll find me talking about here. And I already have in a couple episodes a variety of astrology readings and some downloadable content, astrology audios and videos. The point of creating this Kickstarter is to ask for financial support from the community for all of this uh, content that I share. And I get so much feedback about what kind of value it has in people's lives. And I'm just going for it. I've never done a campaign like this. And I would love to see you all come through. So if you have been loving this content or loving this podcast, I would love to um, work with you. There's many different opportunities through the Kickstarter to work with me one-on-one or be part of the communities that I um, facilitate. And even if you uh, pledge at a tier that's like one of the downloadables, I still really, really appreciate the support and um, the the act or the symbolic quality of that. So I'll keep talking about it here and sharing my progress. Um, I'm super excited and I'll catch you next week. <laughs>